You are entering the Freedom Hut. One of the worst fires in California's history is blazing, and no surprise, the left is trying to blame it on climate change. They're also working overtime to try and prevent us from getting answers on what's going on with this election in Florida and a lot of lies out there about the election in Georgia, too. We've got that and much more coming up on a special Veterans Day edition of The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Happy Veterans Day. Thank you so much for being here. The worst fire in the history of California uh, that is blazing on right now. I, I saw over the weekend on, on social media people that were trying to get the word out via Twitter and trying to direct, uh, trying to direct people to where they could get help and assistance and where the fires were, uh, how they were moving, where they were moving. Uh, you had celebrities, Gerard Butler, Miley Cyrus, a bunch of you know globally known actors and and musicians uh, who had their homes just completely destroyed. I mean, just charred into, into nothing uh, in parts of California that are very well known. I mean, this is this is covering a large area, but it, it's gone into uh, Malibu and some of the more famous and um, more expensive parts of the entire state. Uh, but it, it is a horrific, a horrific fire. It has killed 31 people. 200 people are missing. 250,000 people have had to be evacuated and the smoke levels are so bad that people are being told to to stay indoors. Now, if you're going to look at what's going on here, one would think that this should be, you know, meaning that uh, look at look at the root cause here or or how we could prevent this. You would hope that we could minimize how much politics would would play in all of this. Uh, you'd hope that this wouldn't just turn into a moment where people are, are going to claim uh, that this is about something that fits into their narrative. A few things here. First of all, because this cannot reasonably be blamed on Trump, you can tell that there's a little bit of a a, a little bit of a pause with the media on this. They they have to sort of step back and say, well, you know. Hold on a second. Uh, if it's not Trump's fault, what exactly is the takeaway? What's the, what is the narrative building that we do here? And sure, on a policy level, it's about climate change, and we'll get to that in a moment. But they always like to find a way to blame Trump. And if something goes bad somewhere in the world, they want to blame Trump. And on this one, sure, they can argue with his tweets and they can say that they don't like what he says, but it's too hard, even though they say Trump disregards the science on climate change, it's too difficult to find a way to make this Trump's fault. I mean, I, I, I don't even think the craziest lib, which is a scary thing even to say out loud, but believes that Trump is responsible for climate change. You know, he hasn't been in office long enough for it to really be. I mean, he's partially responsible, I'm sure, but they, they don't agree. They wouldn't say that he's the guy behind it all. So so they, they lose a, a step or two on this because, oh, wait, what do we do? Oh, it's not about Trump. This is just... Something that's happened. But but then they take it to, of course, um, let's get into how this is about climate change. And uh, no, none other than uh, Katie Turr over at MSNBC 
was was pushing this this narrative today. Play 16. And uh, Glenn, tell me what what has started these two fires? What's contributed to it? Uh, well, I mean, the, these are natural part of the California environment in, in some ways. I mean, uh, you have all these different ecosystems, but one thing they have in common, particularly at lower elevations, is they're adapted to fire. And, uh, and so this would be happening whether we were here or not. Um, talk to me about the, the drought down there in California, the humidity, the winds, all of those factors that are contributing. And if you can, um, and if it's, if it's appropriate, bring in climate change. These Santa Ana winds, or the Diablos as they're called up north, they're a common part of our climatology, particularly this time of year. And of course, they're going to drive fires. Our fuel is very, very dry because we have a, a seasonal precipitation regime. We haven't had any uh, precipitation since the winter. And we've had very high temperatures in the summer. So this is all the natural ingredients. And then one final question to you, Glenn. Um, if you don't address climate change, if you just pretend like it doesn't exist, can you ever address what's, what's going on in California? Well, I mean, we're always going to have fires here. And in a, in a sense, we're not going to want to exclude them because that will alter the ecosystems. And in fact, fire, extreme fire suppression and exclusion help build up some of the fuels that we have in our forests. Notice how whoever that guy was the expert, he's like, well, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, if I, but there's some other stuff here too. Um, but if, and if you if you do a a Google search, a simple Google search right now on what has caused this fire, um, if you do a simple Google search about what's what's behind all this, you'll see headlines like the following from New York Magazine: In climate in California, climate change has turned rainy season into fire. Megafires more frequent because of climate change and forests. That's NPR. Governor Brown swings back at Trump. Climate change is propelling California's inferno. California fires. What is happening? And is climate change to blame? The Guardian. I mean, you just go to this whole this Washington Post. All these different places, all these different publications tying this to climate change. And and what what I just think is is an amazing thing right off the bat is that they skip past that, okay. It's supposed to be, they're saying that climate change is, is the reason for this. The second uh, most destructive, deadliest fire in history was in 1933. So was climate change really, really bad in 1933? Or, you know, I thought climate change was supposed to have accelerated so dramatically in the last last 20 years. So what was going, why would 1933 have such, oh, because bad fires can happen anywhere. Because fires are not a particularly complicated, at, at, at their essence, not a complicated issue. If you want to have a discussion about policy and management here and what could be done, well, then you actually look at how California has made the lumber industry and logging incredibly difficult. And that has contributed significantly in a way that you can see and understand to much more dense undergrowth in these forested areas and that dense undergrowth is just serves as kindling when things get dry for big fires um, you know there used to be and by the way using fire i mean fire actually is, is a natural process that can be a good thing for forests that clears out some of the uh, some of the undergrowth but you know when you don't allow for logging but you also have all these initiatives to plant all these trees and Forest mismanagement is a very real thing in California now. And it's it can't be ignored. That, you know, there are plenty of places, plenty of countries, or pl rather plenty of states, plenty of countries, uh, plenty of states where there's a lot of forest 
And they don't have problems quite as bad as they do in California in recent years with regard to this. And you'd have to ask yourself, well, why, why is that? Now, population density certainly plays a role, um, but there are also policies involved here. And ultimately, this isn't about, this isn't really a political issue. A, a, a forest management conversation should be, hey, is what we're doing really sound? Does this really make sense? Is this necessary in the best usage of regulations and resources? But what it turns into is, oh my gosh, you don't believe in climate change or a science denier. It gets emotionalized right away. This uh, very interesting piece, by the way, in Forbes from a while back on this. I just wanted to share this with you. Talking about how they used to do forest management in California and how it has changed and how it affects the way things go with this fire, uh, with, with these fires. Quote, in 2001, George Gruel, a wildlife biologist with five decades of experience in California and other western states, authored the book Fire in Sierra Nevada Forests, uh, a photographic interpretation of ecological change since 1849. Gruel's remarkable effort compared hundreds of landscape photographs from the dawn of photography with photos taken from the same location 100 years or uh, later or more. The difference was striking. In the 1850s and 1860s, the typical Sierra landscape was of open fields of grass punctuated by isolated pine stands and a few scattered oak trees. The first branches on the pine trees started about 20 feet up, lower branches having been burned off by low-intensity grass fires. California's Native American population had for years shaped this landscape with fire to encourage the grasslands and boost the game animal population. As the gold rush remade modern California, timber was harvested and replanted. Fires were suppressed because they threatened homes as well as burned up a valuable resource. The landscape filled in with trees, but the trees were harvested every 30 to 50 years. In the 1990s, however, that cycle began to be disrupted with increasingly burdensome regulations. The timber harvest cycle slowed and in some areas stopped completely, especially on the almost 60% of California forest land owned by the federal government. Federal lands have not been managed for decades, threatening adjacent private forests, while federal funds designated for forest maintenance have been borrowed for fire suppression expenses. The policies frequently reduce the economic value of forest to zero, and with no intrinsic worth remaining, interest in maintaining the forest decline, and with it the resources to reduce the fuel load. Um, end quote. I mean, this is a very interesting piece. It really just goes, it's by Chuck DeVore on Forbes, it really just goes into how California changed policies around this, and also de-incentivized an active interest for people to be involved in forest management in California. That's right, the profit motive, that does matter. People want to get lumber, they want to get timber. They actually were using some of the, um, some of the growth for fuel to power electric plants. He goes on to this in, in, in more detail. Quote, some two decades ago, California produced so much wood waste from its timber operations, including brush and small trees from thinning efforts, that the resulting renewable biomass powered electric generating plants across the length of the state. But cheap subsidized solar power combined with air quality concerns and a lack of fuel due to cutbacks in logging led to the closure of many biomass generators. What used to be burned safely in power generators is now burned in catastrophic fires. End quote. I mean, this is real... 
This is a real discussion. This is real stuff that's going on in forests in California. Do we want do we want to be able to have some hope of lessening these catastrophic fires, saving lives as well as huge amounts of property and obviously the expense the state has in trying to deal with these things? Well, they have to deal with real root causes. Saying it's climate change just doesn't cut it. It just doesn't cut it. Because what's really the answer then? The answer is to get China to stop stop putting CO2 in the air in India? Does, does California really think that its state environmental policies are in some way really lessening climate change? I mean, can they not do math in the state legislature in California? Because I assure you that it does not matter. It does not matter. But this is where ideology trumps, pardon the expression, sound policy. This is where people have been conditioned to think climate change is this great evil that must be combated and good people want to combat it. Bad people don't care about it. That's the way that they view this. That's the prism for all of this. So while we have dozens of people killed and many more possibly have been lost to this fire and we should be having a conversation because remember, this is this is going to continue to happen. It, it's been happening. The conversation should be, what can we do to stop the next fire? Meanwhile, the environmentalist left, their response to it is essentially, well, we can stop these fires in 50 years, maybe, if we get the whole world to do what we say and stop putting CO2 in the air. That is utterly unserious, and in this context, it's destructive, and it just goes to show you how radicalized the left has become on all these environmental issues. We also have to discuss an election in Florida here, folks, that is just showing you some of the worst of the Democratic Party, which is, I guess, not a surprise, but nonetheless, that's where we are with it. Um, Where does that stand? Also, the election in Georgia. And I know we've got to do some updates on the Mueller probe. Hillary, oh, that's right. Hello! Hillary's running. She hasn't said that, but other people than me are saying it. You know, I've been saying it a long time. Got to discuss that. Some thoughts on Veterans Day. We have a jam-packed show for you today. So thank you for being here with me, and we'll be right back. The president has been saying that there's election fraud in Florida. Um, What do you think is happening in in Broward County? Is this election fraud, and is there a role that Congress needs to play in upgrading election infrastructure? Well, yes to the second part, but let's go to the first part first. My experience with the president is any time he charges somebody with something, he's just projecting what he might have done himself. Uh, we are not in Election fraud? Well, obstruction, uh, uh, suppression of the vote, uh, those, those kinds of issues are, are I think, uh, wrong and not in honor of our sacred right to vote. Uh, so, no, there is no election fraud. What there is is an honest count of the vote. I mean, she's wrong. Does, does anyone care that she's wrong? I, just, well, I was wondering here. Does, she, does it matter to her that they're violating law in the state of Florida when it comes to elections, that they're not actually uh, adhering to what they're supposed to under the law, that they're taking invalid provisional ballots and mix them in with valid provisional ballots? They've, this has all been established. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not guessing. They keep acting like, oh, no, it's just we just have to 
find a way to get the, the count or the whatever, you know. No, 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 no. They have not actually done this properly. They have not done this election properly. So, you know, let's skip the, oh, there's good faith efforts and everything's really fine. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Then you have to ask the question, why are Democrats not outraged about this the least? And we all know it's because they lost these two very important contests, uh, Gillum uh, to uh, DeSantis and Scott to Nelson. They lost these two contests. A Senate seat and a governor's seat hang in the balance. And, yeah, they th- any outcome for them is better than the current outcome. So drag this thing out as much as possible. And if you have a familiarity with the way things went back in uh, 2000, then you know that Gore wanted to basically do a recount in some places, but not in others. The idea being, when you know that a district or a county is overwhelmingly historically and and just in terms of registration going to be favorable to your party, what you want to do is just try to, to, to just include as many votes as you possibly can, even votes that shouldn't be included because you're figuring that on balance you're going to get more votes. But that's not the way it's supposed to go. There's also a lot of room for shenanigans here And let's understand that the chance of people being caught for some of this stuff is zero. Do you know why? Because they can always claim that it's a good faith error and nobody gets in trouble for a good faith error. For example, if a ballot has any any defacement, destruction, anything at all, it can be under Florida law remade with a new ballot with the same vote. Well, guess what? Somebody can just redo that vote, destroy the old ballot. I'm like, yeah, I did that one right. Now, there's supposed to be monitors there. I understand there's processes in place, but the processes aren't being respected in Florida. That's what nobody seems to understand here. I just find the whole, the whole thing. I mean, this is just, I mean, Pelosi is, I'm glad that she's going to be Speaker of the House, folks, because she's just an advertisement for don't give these people power. Uh, unfortunately, she's going to have power. That's the other side of this. Uh, we got a lot more Florida, Georgia, other things coming up, team. So uh, stay with me, and we will be right back. A lot of stuff going on in this Florida election that's shady. A lot of stuff that we should be concerned about. Um, first of all, you got Gillum, who, in, in part, I think this guy Gillum in Florida, who was the, probably the second. The, the, the big three for Dems in the, in the midterms were Beto, Robert O'Rourke, Stacey Abrams. I always love it. Libs always make fun of my name. And I'm like, my name is, this, is, I, this happens to me on Twitter. I'm like, your name is Buckson. I'm like, okay, my name is James Buckman Sexton, if we really want to really go there. And it's just a shortened, ver- uh, a nickname that's a shortened version of your name. I think that's, you know, I, I don't walk around calling myself, uh, you know, Something from another culture. I was trying to think of one on the fly there, but uh, you know, if I call myself Bucko, that doesn't really have the same same break as Beto. Um, but yeah, Beto O'Rourke and you had Stacey, you have Stacey Abrams and Gillum were the three big hopefuls for the Democrats in this midterm, and they lost all three so far. So far, oh, Beto, I, I don't think Beto is demanding a recount, but some of these other ones. Uh, some of these other ones are, and uh, or, or you know, trying to extra- extend this thing as long as I can. Gillum, 
uh, is out there now using this really as, I think, just free publicity for his 2020 run, which I do believe is going to happen now. Because remember, it used to be, oh, you have to hold office and there's a progression to become president. Not in the era of Trump, there's not. Trump didn't Trump didn't have to be a congressman. Trump didn't have to be a senator. So you got to remember that. We have a whole a whole political shift that has happened now. So there's no longer any, oh my gosh, you know, he 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 can't be uh you know, he he's he's gotta be the senator or the governor of first. No, no, that that that's not the way it is anymore. So we should all establish that in our minds, right right off the bat. Uh there's not this same expectation of um there's not the same expectation of a pr- previous political skill. So there's that. And then you have um, Gillum, who's out there making the, all these speeches, and, and he's really pushing for himself, I think, for 2020. Uh, play 12 and 13 here, John. In America, uh, we count every vote regardless of what the outcome may be. Let me say clearly, I am replacing uh, my words of concession with an uncompromised and unapologetic call that we count every single vote. We count every vote. Even if it takes you into the middle of next week, you better count every vote. We are not going to be ignored. We're going to make sure that every single vote is counted in this process. Y'all, I may not be greeting you tonight as the governor of the state of Florida, but I'm the mayor of Tallahassee, and more than that, I'm an American and a Floridian, and I demand that every vote be counted in this process. Even votes that aren't supposed to be counted, I guess. This is this is where the, on this issue with the Democrats, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you, you see what's really at, at, at work here. Uh, they They want to count votes that, are not supposed to be counted. They want to count votes that it's not clear who the vote was for. Uh, there are rules in these elections, right? I mean, an election is not just, it's not just one person, one vote, and that's the way this goes. No, you have to be ready. You know, for example, I'm an American. I'm a citizen. I have the right to vote. Could I just show up in Florida and vote there? No. Why? Because I'm not a resident of the state of Florida. So that would be voter fraud. That's bad. And that's just the rule, right? Th- those are the rules, I don't get to just show up and vote in any state that I want just because. Uh, there are rules in place to ensure the integrity of an election. And what you see the Democrats doing is forget all the rules. Just count it, Just count all the paper you got and make sure you count a little extra for the Democrats. That's the plan. Forget all the guideposts and guidelines we've got there. No, 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 forget all that stuff. Just go with whatever gets the most votes for a Democrat. And, and I, I still have this challenge out there. Show me the election where a Republican lost by a narrow margin, and and played all kinds of games and through chicanery, it's a fun word, right? Through uh, playing games, was able to turn the election from the Democrat win column to a Republican win. I'm I'm not familiar with that, at least in my lifetime. Somehow, it's always the left. It's always the uh, the Democrats. That are in this position of, oh, no, we got to do this and that and this and that and keep going. And that's just uh, that's an issue. That is very much an issue. Um, So in the Abrams race, by the way, in Georgia, here's what's going on. Remember, rules are rules, right? You know, rule law. I thought that's what we're all supposed to be on the same team about rule law. Well, the Georgia Democratic Party and gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. Remember, she had Will Ferrell and Oprah stumping for her. I mean, a lot of star power there. 
but she is uh, she is not conceded, even though Kemp has said he's resigned from his position in the, in the state government. And uh, he is saying that, you know, it's his election, essentially. And she's not she is not yet conceded. And here's how this goes. Uh, they're they're filing lawsuits. The lawsuits are challenging the rejection of a thousand absentee ballots, for example, for missing information or mismatching information like birth dates or addresses. Now, he, he, here's where this here's what this really comes down to. If for a if everyone went into this election, and remember it's different state to state, so I, I can't I'm not pretending to be, nor could I ever be an expert in the specifics of how every state does everything when it comes to its ballots and selection. And we all still know all the jokes about dimpled and hanging chads and all that stuff from from 2000. But if the rules were agreed upon beforehand and the rules say you got to have a DOB, you got to, you know, on your registration, it has to have the right address. And if not, the vote does not get counted. Guess what? The vote does not get counted. It, it doesn't change because Democrats now have this chant, you know, every vote counted, every vote counted. No. Every legally cast vote counted. Because if you're going to change the rules for people that voted in the wrong county, which, for example, happened in Georgia, and the Abrams campaign is challenging that in court, if you're going to challenge votes cast that don't have a DOB or are mismatches or or do not comply with the standards that have been set out for those votes, why can't I go vote in Georgia? Why not count my vote now? I mean, the election's still going on, apparently. They're still counting votes. I'm an American. I should have a say, right? Oh, but Buck, you don't live there. But yeah, that's arbitrary, isn't it? See, this is why rule of law matters so much. The only time you can ignore rule of law is when there's a a true moral conflict, right? I mean, a, a law... A law that that forces you to act in a way that is against your conscience because it is immoral, then you can nullify. Uh, but that's obviously a very that's a last resort. It's a very dangerous thing to do for a society, although sometimes it's necessary. Uh, but in these cases, we're talking about election procedures. The rules are the rules. You don't like the rules? Change the rules. Because all an election really is is a process. A process with a lot of. And that's the same thing with democracy, by the way. The libs love to talk about democracy, but democracy doesn't lead to good outcomes necessarily at all. Check out Egypt after the Arab Spring. They put the Muslim Brotherhood in charge. Muslim Brotherhood won that election. Muslim Brotherhood was popular. That's what a lot of libs in this country and the Obama administration found out the hard way. Oh, wow. You mean that when people have a chance to vote in Egypt, they actually want the Muslim Brotherhood in charge? Yeah, a lot of them did. But the rules for an election that are determined in advance have to be the rules that you use for the election or else it calls the whole thing into question. Right, what, are you, what are you going to be basing these lawsuits and these new decisions on if it's just going to be what's good for the Democratic Party? It's going to be this new concept that, well, any vote that's cast should be countered even if it violates election law? even if it's uh, unclear who they meant to vote for, unclear that this is somebody who should be allowed to vote in this district or in this in this state. So, And by the way, th- a lot of this is also about protecting the process. I mean, the reason that we have people uh, register and, and there are these, these things that are in place is so that you don't have people voting 10 times. It's so that you don't have people who just show up. And imagine this. Imagine that we had the electoral, uh, the election system, or we, you know, we had elections 
really just based on this principle the Democrats have of count every vote. Let's just say that we took that to its logical ends here. If you didn't have to show ID, you didn't you didn't have to reg- why register? Why did you have to register? That's oppressive. I think registration's oppressive. You shouldn't have to register to vote. So just show up and cast your vote. You don't have to show ID, you don't have to register nothing. Does anyone think that there would be any enforcement? I mean, this you're talking about statewide and then even nationwide elections. There'd be any enforcement of people who would show up and, and vote all over the place? And you might say, oh, Buck, nobody, nobody would ever do that. Well, people already do that. People already go to prison for voter fraud. So we know that that happens. But if there was no integrity measure put in place, if, if there was absolutely nothing that was being done to try and prevent cheating from happening, then guess what? There'd be cheating all over the place. I mean, the same libs that are telling me all the time that Trump is a fascist and America is becoming a, a kind of a semi-Nazi state because they won't just take in masses of, of illegal aliens from the third world on a whim, in addition to the million legal immigrants we're taking in every year, those same people think that it's, it's, it's a too far afield to think of cheating an election? If I believe that the country were about to fall into the grips of fascism because of Trump, and, and, I, and I was 99% sure that I could get away with you know, voting 100 times in an election, I mean, you know, is, is that a decision I'd make? You know, think about that one for a second. And you knew you weren't going to get caught because they don't, they don't check, they don't know. All you, all you do is check in a box, walk into this one, check a box, walk in, come in, come in, you know, a bunch of times throughout the course of the day. You think the election uh, people that are there are going to say anything? I'm not going to say anything, right? So, you know, you just take it to the, to the, to the ultimate extremes here. Um, you know, Rick Scott is trying to make this a, he's trying to make this point. I think he's doing a pretty good job. Play 11. We want free and fair elections. We want people to participate, but we don't want any fraud. We need to know exactly what happened here. Uh, and that's what we're trying to trying to understand. We never want this to happen again. No one else to go through this. But, you know, we won. Um, Ron DeSantis won. We need to go forward and start thinking about our agendas. Bill Nelson is clearly a sore loser. He can't stand the fact that he's not going to be elected for, what, the first time in decades. And he won't. He's, he's just here to steal this election. That's what he's done. His lawyer came down here and said, I'm here to win the election. I'm not here to get a, get a free and fair election, make sure votes are, ca- are counted. No, he wants to win the election. That's his only purpose. So this is a big difference, by the way. You heard Rick Scott there say, we, we don't want any fraud. The Democrats do want fraud. That's right, I'm just going to say it. Democrats want fraud in this election. Democrats believe there should be fraud in this election if it means the Democrat wins. They do not care. For people who talk so much, by the way, about processes and integrity of the process and institutions and everything, you see, that was just all, that's just all <laughs> facade. That's just all a big joke. They don't really mean any of that. That's just stuff that they say to each other. Oh, but I don't think I told you what the, the Abrams play here is. Abrams is, is hoping to file lawsuits. The idea is she can't win the election. She's done, she's down uh, to Kemp by almost 60,000 votes or almost 59,000 votes I see here. Um, but what she's hoping is that she can just get him below the 50% threshold so then they can force a recount. So she wants a recount of the whole thing. And then that just gives them more opportunities to count more votes that shouldn't be counted. Find more votes in, you know, trunks of cars that all just happen to all be for Democrats. What a shock. 
That's amazing to see this play out, but it's it's good though as well. I actually think this is an important reminder for all of us going into the 2020 election. This is how Democrats play the game, and if you think that they're playing dirty to win some Senate seats and some governor's races, which are very important, but just wait till Trump is on the ballot. Uh, there is there is nothing that they won't do that would be in their minds effective. The only limitation to their conduct is the effectiveness of the conduct, not the illegality or immorality of it when it comes to Trump. The effect, does it work? Will it help them win? Uh, that's what you're going to see in 2020. Um, 844-900-2825. You want to chat, team? We'll be uh, back in just a moment. You tell your pre-White House self. Whew. You know, the hard parts were the things that I expected. That it was going to be hard, you know. So much of this country lives in isolation and we just don't know each other. And so there were people who didn't know what a black woman was and sounded like. And so I, I knew that was going to be a challenge. Uh, so that's Michelle Obama. She said there were people who didn't know what a black woman was. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I just, that struck me. I, I'm not, I'm not clear on what she's really even, what she's trying to say. Um, you know, I, I can think of a lot of very prominent African-American females who were nationally and internationally quite well-known before Michelle Obama came along. So I, I, it strikes me as very strange, uh, a strange comment, but I, I honestly just have to tell you, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what she's really, I don't really know what she's getting at here. Uh, but I, w- I will say that uh, one, and we're going to, don't worry, we're going to talk, we're going to talk later on about, um, we're going to talk later on about Hillary running. But I do think that uh, there's going to be, and I, I'm just putting it, I think that there's a really, people say, oh, Michelle Obama never. She'll never do it. She'll, she has no interest. She would never run. Isn't that, but and I know this is always the thing, but isn't that what they would say? Isn't that, you know, what they're supposed to say in that situation? Because you don't want to put somebody in the, uh, in the midst of the political maelstrom before they're ready to handle all that. So isn't that a little bit of a, of a, you know, that, that's what we would expect. I'm just saying, you're going to have somebody who emerges from this. If it's not Hillary, which we're going to talk about later. Hello! We'll talk about that later. If it's not Hillary, um, it's going to be somebody that we're not really even talking about right now. It has to be. It has to be. And, uh, you know, Michelle Obama is has this tremendous favorability rating, uh, you know, is on this book tour. I mean, it can't be Barack. I'm pretty, right? We're pretty sure about that. Although I could see liberals saying, maybe we've got to change that rule, uh, find a way to get around that whole third term thing. I think that that's possible. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. A little, I got a little more about the election official at the center of the Florida, Broward County. It's not just Florida. It's Broward County, really. Let's get into this. A little bit of Palm Beach County, too. But Broward County debacle. Uh, we'll get into that. And then uh, some thoughts on Veterans Day and... Uh, some other important stories of the day team. So uh, stay right there. I'll be back in a moment. 
dual certified, veteran owned. That's Global Verification Network. If you are a company, large or small, and you need somebody to do your background investigations and vetting, you've got to give my friends at Global Verification a call. Background checks are essential. You really can't hire without them. You want to know who's coming into your company, where they're coming from, what's their background, have they paid all their bills in the past, do they have good credit, do they have any criminal issues. That's where background investigations are so helpful, all right? You really want to check them out. Global Verification Network, headquartered here in Chicago, veteran-owned and operated, and their risk mitigation experts do not offshore any of the cases or any of your data to servers outside the continental United States, all right? Everything, everyone is here stateside. Check out Global Verification Network. Call 877-695-1179, 877-695-1179, or go to mygvn.com. The same kind of intimidation tactics that we saw in 2000, they're rolling them out again, which also makes people suspicious because if you are, if you're not worried um, that counting all the votes will just in a democratic way small d elect the other side if 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 there's something else going on that's why you'd flip out right if, i mean andrew gillum's not freaking out and he's behind you know he's not freaking out but this is the tenor of the republican protests this is what they're mounting in broward county the most democratic county i think the largest county in florida here is the way they are treating uh, brenda snipes who is the longtime election supervisor there who by the way is an older black woman in the deep south okay just keep that in mind that's just so that's just so underhanded. It really is. That's an MSNBC contributor. That's Joy Reid. By the way, pretty sure they haven't found the hackers who supposedly got into her uh, her blog from 10 years ago and and wrote the Remember, She had the she had the FBI looking into it. I, I have a feeling I have a feeling that they never they never found those hackers. Wow. What a what a shock that must be. I bet she was on pins and needles just waiting. Oh, my gosh, when are they going to find the hackers that went into my blog from 10 years ago and wrote things in my voice and tone that sounds like I'm being mean about gay people? Uh, didn't find those hackers, Joy. And, and she kept her job at MSNBC. Is that amazing? You can be a homophobe and lie about it and keep your job at MSNBC. She did. Uh, as I said, if she had just if she had come out initially and, and apologized for that and just said, look, I, what I wrote 10 years ago was a disgrace. And I'd say, all right, look, I mean, you know, people people change. She owned it. But no, she lied about it. In addition, she lied about it. And they, but she kept her job anyway. But notice how on this debacle going on in Florida right now, which anybody who's paying attention knows that this is a debacle, that this is a an attempt to steal an election. Now, now keep in mind that the attempt doesn't have to necessarily be all that concerted. If all they're doing here is trying to make this thing extend out as far as they can with an eye toward any any outcome other than the outcome they had on election night is good, then that's trying to steal the election. If you're saying, hey, you know, let's just let's just muddy up the waters here and see what we get afterwards. And you know that there's fraud and you know that there's ballots that that should not be counted. And this is why this phrase they use of count every vote. It's a really loaded phrase because every vote should not be counted. A vote that is too late, that has passed the deadline, that was cast beyond the deadline, should not be counted. A vote that 
was changed by somebody who is making a determination based upon their judgment in violation of the law of who the person, quote, really wanted to vote for, should not be counted. There are a lot of votes that should not be counted. People that vote twice should not have every vote counted, right? We know this. But the, the, the slogan overtakes the reality in the public's mind. That's why that's all they're saying. We just want every vote counted. We just want every vote counted, which is another way of saying we want to see how many things we can do here and how many different games we can play to try to change the outcome. Because they already know. Remember, it's not count every vote and we don't know who won the first time around. This is count every vote because we already lost. The only outcome here that is a change in outcome is the one that they want, right? I mean, the, the, the only way that this uh, that this is, there, there's no downside for them for, for pushing for this to continue on. But I, I just, I really, the notion of, of you know, Joy Reid saying that, that, that racism plays a role here. Did racism play a role in all the other counties that were able to get their ballots in on time? You know, Brenda Snipes now, they're, they're trying to, this is just a smokescreen. They're throwing up a smokescreen in front of her to try to make it seem like there's nothing bad going on here. There's no real problem, nothing to address. Uh, but that's all a lie. And then you, I mean, MSNBC, which just puts a lot of very dumb people on television on, on a regular basis. Uh, I see Steve Schmidt, I think, uh, who's speaking of dumb people. Yeah, Steve Schmidt, on, I'm on TV and I'm saying things. Yeah, I wrote, read McCain campaign, lost, but lost is good. Steve Schmidt. Uh, Steve Schmidt is apparently going to be the election, running the running the uh, campaign for Howard Schultz, the left-wing Starbucks guy. Wow, Steve, I, I thought you were supposed to be a, quote, Republican. Anyway, uh, but MSNBC's got Andrea Mitchell. Here's what, here's what she says about Snipes. Play 15. We should also point out that Brenda Snipes in Broward County is a Republican appointed by former governor, then Governor Jeb Bush. So she was put in by a Republican governor after the mess that we all remember from 2000. And she's hardly a Democratic uh, official or someone doing the bidding of the Democratic candidates there. That's not true. Does MSNBC care that it's not true? No, of course. Oh, of course not. Eh, no big deal. She's a Democrat. And yes, she was appointed by Jeb Bush, but you know, it's not supposed to be a politically contentious position because you're supposed to just run the election in a legal fashion. But Brenda Snipes is, is a Democrat. Uh, and, and Brenda Snipes, who's come at this, remember, she's the in charge of the election in Broward County. She is the election official. And she's already, you know, creating all kinds of problems. You know, for example, when she's asked, oh, can you uh, can you explain what the heck is going on here? This was the election official in charge of Broward where you could have a Senate seat and a governorship change hands. So there's a lot at stake here. By the way, a Senate and a governor's seat in a state that is probably the single biggest battleground out there for 2020 and for Trump. Trump wins Florida, he wins. Trump loses Florida, he probably loses. Here's what Brenda Snipes, though, says about, and you say, Buck, that's Trump, that's 2020. Yeah, but the governor, the power of the incumbency for the party, and, you know, there's a lot of political machinery that is helpful for the president in that state if you have both the governor and, and the Senate seat with, uh, with, GO, with GOP control, right? So we all understand this. 
But uh, Brenda Snipes, when asked to explain this situation, here's how she explains it. Play clip one. Dr. Snipes, it is now Thursday. Mm -hmm. We are still counting ballots in Broward County. Five pages or six pages for each of the people who voted. But other counties have been able to do it. But other counties didn't have 600,000 votes out there. Well, Miami-Dade did. Well, have you been inside my Never mind. Let me go check. I'll check. But it's a serious issue. It always it's seems like it is. It's a serious issue with me. I've been doing this now since October 22nd. But if it's a serious issue with you. We ran 22 sites. We ran 14 days. We ran 12 hours. We had a big vote by mail. So don't try to turn it around to make it seem like I'm making comedy out of this. I, I don't think okay. anybody's, anybody's made anybody make it. But the question, but, but, but there are serious questions. Why is she done for the moment? We'd like to know how many votes are outstanding. Won't answer. That's a function of law, by the way. She she is legally obligated to know how many votes are outstanding. But you see, they can't tell you how many votes are outstanding if they're planning on adding more and more votes in the mix. That you get that that's the precursor to fraud is don't put an upper limit on the amount of votes that you can discover, because then if you discover too many, it's clear you added votes into the mix, folks incompetence or cheating that's the only question we are left with and i think you're being very naive if you don't think that there's any cheating i think the question is just how much cheating are we really talking about that's what we should be focused on and there is a lot at stake here think about how much you do on your computer every day do you want that information being accessed stored and shared by a third party well, that's what happens whenever you're using social media sites. There are all these marketing companies online, and they can track you. If you want to stop that, if you want to take back your online security, go to ExpressVPN, my friends. ExpressVPN is a virtual private network. It has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, my phone, and my tablet. It's so easy to turn on, by the way, and it costs less than $7 a month. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to make sure that hackers and spies can't get to your stuff, this is an area I know a bit about, my friends. Really need to call ExpressVPN. Check them out for yourself. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. For three months free with a one-year package, expressvpn.com slash buck current acting attorney general matt whitaker's statements and comments and essentially trying to 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 see if they are advising him to recuse and if so uh are they going to inform congress of that uh what more can you tell me about this letter well it's signed by all of our leadership house and senate myself included uh to demand that we find out did they give an ethics opinion uh has one been sought on recusal it seems to me the facts for recusal are very strong here. This is someone who's made uh, repeated and prejudicial comments against the investigation. It's someone who has made false statements about it, claiming that the Russians uh, really had no impact on our election. I got to tell you, Adam Schiff might be the most oleaginous, distasteful, disgraceful of all the Democrats in, in Congress, at least all the Democrats in Congress that involve themselves in this whole Russia collusion mess. I mean, he, he's got, folks, he's got to be up there. You know, I mean, he, he is uh, so 
unethical in what he says, so completely hyper, I mean, hyper-partisan in a way that, that should be embarrassing, but obviously it plays well with his base. And I, I just find myself getting kind of the, the creeps from this guy all the time. And he's just disgusting. It's just gross. Absolutely gross. Um, but he understands that he's going to be center stage for the next two years, the Democrats. Democrats got nothing other than Mueller, Russia collusion, and Trump is a racist. That That's going to be what you hear for the, for, for almost for, for two years. That's where we're going to be. That's what you're going to hear from them. They've got no ideas. They can't inspire. They can't debate. They can just smear. That's where all this is heading. And Schiff understands that. So that this is why it's not just about what Mueller is, uh, is going to do. And by the way, I see here that uh, according to Mediaite, which is a site that kind of catalogs media happenings throughout the day, the former InfoWars bureau chief, Illuminati, the Bilderbergs, Google it. Uh, the former InfoWars bureau chief says that Mueller is going to indict him for perjury. Uh, I don't know if this is just... Um, Jerome Kersey says Mueller will indict... Oh, it's Jerome Kersey. I thought it was going to be Stone. No, Jerome Corsi. I don't know who this guy really is. Um, but yeah, I, I've been hearing also... I've heard from Roger Stone himself. He told me that there is a chance that maybe he, he will also... He will also fall into the uh, the snare of the Mueller investigation. That that's a very real possibility for him. Um, but there's a lot of politics around this whole Mueller thing too, as you know. It's been going on forever. It's boring now, right? I mean, we haven't had a an indictment or anything happen in a long time. Mueller's writing his report. I don't think there's really much of anything in it. And Schiff understands that this is going to be how they spin the Mueller report. There's not going to be a bombshell from the Mueller report. They need to leapfrog, or no, wait, that's not that's not really the, the lily pad leap. I don't know. They, they they need to pivot off of. That's what. I, there you go, Buck. Find the words, Buck. Find the words. They need to pivot off of whatever Mueller puts out there because they need to extend this. They need to have their own versions of this. Oh, we're gonna have Mueller hearing and Mueller. People are gonna come out like, do you understand, sir, that the Russia, the Russian Kremlin, it's just colluded in this election. Oh my gosh, right? That's. That's where this is heading. Um, so Schiff is trying to m- mess with the politics of this a little bit. Play clip eight. Does political opinion, how much should it impact y- what you do in uh, the Democratic Congress these days? Well, I, you know, political, uh, public opinion always affects us in, in one degree or another. But I will say this, having watched uh, Mueller's uh, ratings over time, the one thing that we see is around the time he produces indictments, around the time that he produces convictions, the support for his investigation goes up. The longer the lapse between indictments, the more his ratings go down. So what we're seeing now, I think, is merely the lull, because in the period leading up to the midterms, uh, he properly took no action. Uh, but I think when he issues his report, or if there are further indictments, you will see public confidence in his work once again rise. There you have it. Indictments makes him more popular. So the politics of this are front and center for all of us. And, and Schiff understands that. So what, he, what he's saying, I mean, he, what he's trying to say is, oh, well, people will like it more when there's more indictments. Be, and so that therefore that the, the approval rating for Mueller doesn't really matter. But I think it's so interesting is, yeah, that's right. Prosecutors are 
often making deeply political moves. And that's what's going on here. I mean, what Mueller is going to end up doing will have a massive uh, impact on American politics. One way or the other, if it doesn't have any more, if there are no more shoes to drop or bombshells or, you know, pick your cliche, if there's none of that, well, then it just turns into, okay, um, how do we translate? How do we transition as Democrats? How are they going to take this and say, oh, my gosh, we got to have more. We got to do more things. We got to, you know, look into Russia and this guy named Oleg wants to talk to this guy named Yuri who talked to this guy. named, You know, they're just going to completely lose their minds in trying to create some pretext to continue this thing. After you've had a special counsel, by the way. There was no special counsel on Benghazi. I mean, because that's what they always point to. They say, oh, well, conservatives, look at how fixated you. There's no special counsel on Benghazi. There's no special counsel on Fast and Furious. There was no special counsel on Lois Lerner and the IRS targeting of, of conservatives. No, that was all handled in-house by Eric Holder. Okay? And then Loretta Lynch at the very end. And by the way, the same people that want to... That want to uh, lecture us on recusal issues. I always find this so fascinating. Yeah, the, the Democrats, the, the people that defended Loretta Lynch, who met with the husband of the target of the most important federal investigation in the country during an election, Bill Clinton, on the tarmac in Arizona. She did not recuse herself. She did not recuse herself from that investigation. But now they want to tell us that Whitaker, the new acting head of the Department of Justice, he should recuse himself? If Mr. Whitaker does not recuse himself... He's not legally required to, even if the ethics office says he should, correct? Uh, I don't know whether he's legally required to, um, but here's the thing. We have every right to expect all of the employees of the Justice Department to follow the ethics rules, and that means especially the Attorney General. But, uh, you know, I want to make this very clear. Uh, If he doesn't recuse himself... If he has any involvement whatsoever in this Russia probe, mm-hmm. uh, we are going to find out whether he made commitments to the president about the probe, whether he is serving as a back channel to the president or his lawyers about the probe, whether he's doing anything to interfere with the probe. Mr. Whitaker needs to understand that he will be called to answer and any role that he plays will be exposed to the public. Notice how the standard here is adjusted because we're talking about somebody that is considered to be somewhat right of center, somewhat favorable to Trump in his politics, you know. So so the ethics office, Schiff is even coming out and saying, even if the ethics office doesn't say he has to recuse himself. I mean, this is Democrat rules, folks. Well, even if he's obeying the rules, we should come up with new rules that he should have to obey that we like. Even if he doesn't have to recuse himself at DOJ, he should recuse himself from DOJ because we want him to. That's really it. Or, or because of the the appearance of conflict. What about the appearance of conflict for Rosenstein? Rosenstein wrote the letter used to fire Comey. The firing of Comey was the whole basis for igniting this special counsel dumpster fire. So how is he in charge? And and this is considered okay. But remember, we're talking about libs here. No principles, just desires, just things that they want. Impulses, emotions. Uh, there, there's not a, a framework of principle that we can use here to see eye to eye with them because ultimately, and you see this with Schiff, they know what they want, which is the destruction of the Trump administration, and they want to achieve power for the left. Whatever does that is good. Whatever blocks that is bad. That's the only principle they work with. That's the only thing you have to know to understand where the left is on these issues, how it's acting, and what it's trying to do. 
And, you know, I, I just think that we all need to be ready for this because, man, the stuff you're going to see from Schiff going forward and his Democrat uh, comrades when it comes to this Mueller and Russia stuff, it's going to be wild. It's going to be destructive. It's going to get ugly. Are you concerned about your current email service, your privacy and protection? Then iPatriots.us is for you. It's a new conservative alternative to liberal-based email. iPatriots.us email is secure and private. It's more of what you want without all of the liberal nonsense, ads, and spam. Your email files are safe because of its premium antivirus, anti-spam, 250-bit encryption. iPatriots.us won't sell your information or support left-wing agenda items like most of those other email providers out there. With iPatriots, you get 30 gigs of cloud storage, larger attachment sizes, and much more. It works on any Windows or Mac computer and is compatible with most mobile devices. Go to iPatriots.us now. Find the membership level that's right for you at checkout and select your iPatriots email address. Enter promo code BUCK10 for 10% savings during your first whole year of membership. Again, iPatriots.us Promo code BUCK10 for 10% off. There's a lot of lessons to learn here. Not just that the left and right can still agree on some things, but also this, Americans can forgive one another. We can remember what brings us together as a country and still see the good in each other. This is Veterans Day weekend, which means that it's a good time for every American to connect with a veteran. Maybe say thanks for your service, but I would actually encourage you to say something else. Tell a veteran, never forget. When you say never forget to a veteran, you are implying that as an American, you are in it with them, not separated by some imaginary barrier between civilians and veterans, but connected together as grateful fellow Americans who will never forget the sacrifices made by veterans past and present and never forget those we lost on 9-11, heroes like Pete's father. So I'll just say, Pete, never forget. Never forget. And that is from both of us. I got to tell you, it was one of the best moments I've seen, not just on Saturday Night Live, but uh, on TV in, in recent memory. And uh, I think that the, uh, well, first, all due credit to Commander Crenshaw, now Congressman-elect uh, Dan Crenshaw, former Navy SEAL, who went on Saturday Night Live. You remember, you recall, right, there was the, Pete Davidson joke about how Crenshaw, how Crenshaw lost his eye and made some comment about how he looked like a bad guy in a porno movie or something, or a hitman in a porno movie, something like that. And and people were understandably just, you know, that, that just there's just a line that crosses a line. There's something, you don't make fun of uh, w- wounded veterans, you know, you, you don't make fun of people that have you know, terminal disease. There's some things, that, it's just never funny. It's not, it's not cool, it's not funny, it's not cute, and... Davidson made that made that error, and it was you know with with forethought by the way. I mean it, it wasn't a, a a slip of the lip. I mean that was written in the prompter, and they decided to go with it. Now that said, I'm a big believer in people getting another chance and people being able to make amends. Maybe it's my Catholic upbringing. I, I think that you should be able to say, if if in earnest and seriousness, I'm sorry, and then if you can to take steps to show that contrition. And that you should be, you know, forgiven. I mean, you should be given another chance. And I think that these days in the political fights that are going on, there is a sense that we're in a zero-sum environment and that you can never say, uh, you know, you can, you can never say, I forgive you to the other side. 
And while I understand tactically in the in the time of Trump why that's happening, because the left doesn't forgive, they just want to destroy us all the time. I do have to say that uh, this time around, I think it really was for the greater good for all involved. And and I give uh, Pete Davidson credit for uh, manning up here and saying that you know he he made a mistake. And you could tell if you, if you haven't seen the whole clip, and you know I rarely would tell you to go back and watch something from Saturday Night Live. Um, but it, it was it was very well done. Uh, it managed to still be kind of funny, but also obviously respectful. And I I thought it was a, I thought it was a powerful moment. You know, Pete Davidson lost his dad, who's a firefighter, nine eleven. So you know he has suffered. Uh, his family has suffered as well as a result of the wars that we have to fight for our freedom and and for this country. Um, because that's what nine eleven was an act of war. Everyone needs to remember that. I think that sometimes. In the contemporary discussions of it, people refer to it almost like it was a natural disaster, you know. And then this thing happened on 9/11 that launched us into a couple of wars. No, we were we were attacked, uh, and we took 3,000 casualties in one day. So that's what 9/11 was. And I I just would note that uh, this moment with Crenshaw, this moment with Pete Davidson was uh, was heartfelt and. I thought the veteran statement, which we played for you, the statement about what to do with veterans really, really hits home. You know, it's not just thank you, but also let them know that you're not going to forget their service. Let them know that uh, you really care about what veterans have been through and the, and the for a lot of them, the struggles that they have when they return home that, you know, are not the struggles of folks in everyday life. OK, I mean, if you've been deployed to a combat outpost in Afghanistan, you know, if you spent time in the Krungal Valley or if you were kicking in doors in Ramadi circa 2005 or 2006, you have a different problem set sometimes, adjusting to civilian life, adjusting to life uh, back here in America than other people who are just going about their day here will. That's that's to be expected. Uh, that's completely understandable. But the support from the community for those veterans is, is, is so uh, so essential. So you know, there were a lot of different dynamics here with this moment on Saturday Night Live between Crenshaw and Pete Davidson. And and I think uh, it, it was, gosh, I, I really it's getting a little touchy-feely here, but I, I think it really was a teachable moment. I think it, it was a reminder that we can have uh, a restoration of forgiveness and with it a certain degree of of kindness, honor, and dignity in our public discussions about things you know it does not have to be you know my side versus your side always on on everything and if and if someone makes a mistake uh they will never apologize and the other side will never give it now i know some of you're gonna tell me buck you know this was a this was a one-off and and i understand that Uh, and i think that the more likely situation for the next two years to be sure is that we're going to see more of the zero-sum approach to public conversations but they made it work this time around. And I, I think that uh, Crenshaw, obviously, Crenshaw is going to be a national political figure. He already is a, now a known, remember, he just got elected to Congress, hasn't even served one term yet. He, he's a known figure, and, and I think you could see Crenshaw uh, become, uh, you know, give this guy 10 years and, and see where he is. I, I think he's going to be a major a uh, major force in American politics. And this is what I've been saying for a long time. We've had so many incredible people who served overseas. And yes, we're you, you, Tom Cotton, Crenshaw. I mean, I can't even, you know, there, there's so many of them when you that, that are in politics now 
that it's hard to name them off the top of your head. But it hasn't been as many as I would have expected. You know, it hasn't been quite the the surge of of veterans in uh, in our elected offices that I, I would I would have expected. It's it's happening more and more over time. Um, but I certainly encourage it because you know nobody understands sacrifice and service the way that our veterans do. No one, you know, without being a veteran, you can't understand the same capacity. And so, you know, I, I have to say, I think that this Crenshaw. Davidson uh, moment was one of the more powerful Veterans Day statements in a sense that I've seen in, in a while as well, um, because it's a reminder of the disconnect, right? Davidson shows you the disconnect that civilians can, can often have, um, especially on the left, but in general, uh, from the sacrifices of those who serve in our military and this was kind of a, okay, well, let's all really come together and remember what's going on here. You know, let's understand that, you know, for, for, for uh, Dan Crenshaw, sacrifice means, you know, losing an eye. Sacrifice means losing brothers in arms in battle. You know, sacrifice probably meant many sleepless nights when he returned home or at least overseas. Uh, and, and certainly a lot of moments where he had to think to himself, I don't know if I'm ever going to see my family again. I don't know if I'm going to make it back. That's what sacrifice is. And so I think there's a lot that we learn from veterans in, in that respect. Uh, so it, it was it was a really good moment. I mean, I, I, I'm happy to say that uh, for the first time in a long time, I saw something on TV. I mean, I watched it on the playback, but I saw something. I said, you know, that, that's really worth people seeing. And it's a, it's a good end to a story here. Um, that I wasn't I wasn't expecting to go this way. I thought you know Davidson would probably say something, you know, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, my, my bad, I'm sorry, and kind of just leave it there. But this this was really uh, this was really well done, and, and I think that if you haven't had a chance yet, it would be well worth your time to go back, give it a watch, and and see just see how it's done. Uh, you know, when, both on the being a being the bigger person who gives his forgiveness. And also being a person who understands he made a mistake and to make amends for it. Team, while today is Veterans Day and we certainly uh, pay tribute to all of our uh, veterans across the country, I'm glad we got a chance to have our friends from a Black Rifle come by on Friday to speak about their thoughts about veterans in the country right now. Yesterday was the 100th anniversary, uh, anniversary of Armistice Day. Um, the 100th anniversary since... The uh, First World War ended on the, you know, the 11th hour, on the 11th day. And I've got to tell you, this is, it's, it's a war that for, for many reasons, I think because it's overshadowed by World War II, it does not really get the attention, I think, in school that it should. I, I don't think people really understand just how horrific and, and, on, and the scale uh, of the slaughter and how when you look in the early battles, the Battle of the Frontiers, I mean, those, those early military maneuvers, particularly between the Germans and the French, just the masses of people who were cut down with machine gun fire and, and uh, artillery shells and just died in the barbed wire a hundred years since, uh, since that happened. And I, I hope that the world has learned its lesson, but I've got to tell you, I had a conversation recently uh, with a, a friend of mine, a fellow conservative who's also in the media, and, and we we both were discussing what our concerns are for the future. 
Uh, this was in the context of how he had been at a at an event where a liberal, it was a conservative liberal talking on the stage event, where a question from the audience had been that, you know, the question was, what's the thing that worries you the most for the future of this country? What is the one thing that really keeps you up that you think is going to be a big problem going forward? And now I wasn't there, but this was told me by a a friend that I've known now for many years, and, and I trust his word. He says that the very prominent liberal commentator who was there said uh, our inability to deal properly with transgender rights. I, I, I this is what he told me. I mean, I, I had to I had to process that for a second. That's the biggest. I thought maybe they'd say climate change. That's that's probably where the left usually goes because they do view climate change as an existential threat to the planet. So my sense of it was okay. Well. You know, maybe they're going to go with with climate change as the oh, no, gender identity issues are the biggest threat that keeps him up at night. Now, they didn't specify national security threat, to be fair, but the biggest threat. okay. and my friend said uh, a big war. And it was really interesting because I I've been thinking the same thing recently. And the obvious opponent that really worries many of us, although there could be others that rise in the future that would be a problem for us as well, but it's China. And if you look at the historical trends, if you look at the long-term conflict cycles, we are in a period of unbelievable peace and stability on a global level. And I I know we've had the rise of radical Islam and there have been some, some, uh, some problems in a long-term historical philosophical sense that have had to be addressed with military force. And I, I understand all that uh, all too well in some ways. I mean, I've spent some of my life in some of those places as a result of those problems. But we haven't had a war against a first world power since World War II. And so that's why as I go back and think about Remembrance Day, Armistice Day, uh, that there was a time when we had just fought a war between the the most powerful, industrialized, and most advanced nations in the world and had lost an entire generation of young men in a war that, to this day, people still argue over what was this really even about, you know, entangling alliances and uh, and and local disputes that became regional, that became international, that became you know global, and and I just note that there it was in that period of time, it was after we had been through all of that, that Hitler rose to power and that World War II, that an even bigger war, which when you think about it, I mean historically, how how unthinkable is that really, that World War II is in fact what happened after you had these same powers try to at, at all costs avoid war uh, you know that that was that was a huge rallying cry and certainly why uh, british politics went in the direction they did for as long as they did is that there was really an effort to do everything to avoid another war but for us i i just i have this uh, uneasy feeling and i i don't think that it's going to happen in a year i don't think it's going to happen in 5 years but there is a there's going to be a generation of uh, Americans who 
I believe, get drawn into a, a major conflict. Maybe not quite a global conflict, but a major conflict with a, a first world developed country of comparable uh, manpower and you know machinery and military might. And that's just not something that we have dealt with in a long time. We, we have been fighting primarily uh, either either counterinsurgencies or uh, or police actions uh, using the military, you know humanitarian missions using the military. And some uh, some U.S. military uh, action against you know formal forces, something like what happened in in Iraq, and and some of what we've dealt with. Well, Syria is not even really formal forces because we didn't go after Assad. Uh, but we have not fought against Russians. We have not fought against Chinese. We have not gone up against a country where we have not had complete control of the sky, for example, where we have not had absolute technological dominance and and just military dominance across the board really we haven't done that in in a long time uh, and and it's it's, a, it's one thing to be unable to stabilize a foreign country and and bring it to bring it into your uh, your orbit politically or or to to pacify the countryside and things we've seen in places like Vietnam um, but really I mean you you have to go back to the US in the Korean War uh, for us to be up against a, a, a country of comparable manpower, uh, you know, comparable manpower with also a you know a, a pretty high end military hardware at their disposal, courtesy of the Soviets, um, and even that. I mean, that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what do we do when we're fighting a war against a country that who has planes as good as ours, communications as good as ours manpower to match ours in terms of the numbers and just tech technologically has the incredible destructive capabilities that we do it's in our future unless we're able to learn the lessons of uh, the 20th century and apply them i certainly hope we can Hey, Buck, how do you get through a three-hour radio show at night, an hour TV super early in the morning? Oh, I know how I get through it. With a delicious cup or two, maybe three some days, of Black Rifle Coffee. That's right. This is pure freedom distilled down to its delicious essence, my friends. Don't drink that commie coffee from some left-wing progressive social justice wannabe brand, all right? Drink delicious coffee from a bunch of freedom lovers, and that's Black Rifle Coffee. I think that this is the best coffee you can get anywhere just in terms of taste. When you add on top of that, the fact that these guys are all about giving back to the veteran community. This week, we got Veterans Day happening. You really should check out Black Rifle Coffee, all right? Nothing cures a bad attitude quite like starting your day with the most American coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. Receive 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. The psycho left on display once again. This time at a place that uh, actually brings back some memories for me, at least the, the location does. Farmington Country Club in Charlottesville, Virginia. I used to go there and uh, visit my grandmother in Charlottesville, and I would we would actually stay there and have Thanksgiving dinner at Farmington in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, but put that aside, put that family lore aside for a moment here. 
Tucker Carlson, a few weeks back, was at Farmington in Charlottesville, Farmington Country Club, and he had to engage some men who decided to harass his 18-year-old, I'm sorry, 19-year-old daughter. Uh, Tucker was having dinner with some friends and his two adult children, and this is some audio of the incident. There is video of it. Play it. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, I mean, that gives kind of a sense. There's a little more cursing and, you know, it's a kind of a scuffle at the bar at at what is a very, a very kind of upscale and you know, genteel country club setting. So, you know, Tucker apparently can't have dinner. It's a private club. He can't have dinner anywhere these days. Uh, so he, the, now there's a he said, he said situation. Okay, so this is what Tucker, and, and let me just cut to the chase. The other guy's a lib and he's lying. Just based on the based on the facts presented to us, he started some crap and Tucker called him on it. And now they're, oh, and Michael Avenatti has gotten involved. What a surprise. Michael Avenatti is now representing the other individual here who who got into it with Tucker. So Tucker says that on October 13th, he was uh, enjoying a, you know, a meal with some friends and his 19-year-old daughter went to the bathroom and that, quote, on their way back through the bar, a middle-aged man stopped my daughter and asked if she was sitting with Tucker Carlson. Uh, upon learning she was the, the commentator's daughter, Carlson said, uh, are you Tucker's whore? And then called her a misogynistic slur. The woman returned to the table crying. He and his son got up to confront Grenados at the bar. Grenados is the individual accused here of starting the confrontation. And then my son threw a glass of red wine in the man's face and told him to leave the bar, which he soon did. Uh, and now Avenatti is representing the uh, representing Granado here, Grenado, Granado, uh, and, and says that... Um, there are two people that witnessed the altercation, according to Avenatti, and they say that Tucker's version is not true. Uh, let me let me just start with, okay, well, actually, before I get into it, let, let me give you Granado. Granado says that basically everything is true except she was drunk, which I think is so funny. Avenatti keeps saying, oh, underage drinking. That's that's great, dude. That's really that's really going to sell your story to, to, you know, beat up on a 19-year-old girl because she's having a few glasses of wine with her father and some friends. The drinking age should be 18, by the way. It's a whole other conversation we could have another time. But uh, we, we, we allow a, a, a drinking culture in this country to exist that forces it underground. It's bad at a young age. Every, anyway, uh, but she was intoxicated, this guy Grenade, Granado says. And, uh, and then he just said, he did say that, you know, I can't believe you're having dinner with Tucker Carlson or something like that. And then, oh, what a surprise. We get all this reporting from the Washington Post on how he is Latino. He's from Buenos Aires. And he is uh, at the Women's Initiative, a mental health provider. He's an LGBTQ rights volunteer in Charlottesville. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's basically a left-wing activist. I mean, he is a left-wing activist. So what do we think happened here, folks? Do we think that left-wing activists said something that wasn't a big deal. Why Why would she go back to the table crying? 
If they just said, you know, you're eating dinner with Tucker Carlson, it's just not believable. Their version of events is not believable. You know, and and now we're getting into this whole back and forth over, oh, well, maybe we should maybe we should think of this differently because this guy is an LGBTQ volunteer slash activist. No, I'm sorry. You're not more or less believable because of your sexual orientation or your political persuasion. Okay, that's not I'm not living in that country. That's not America. It's the story. It's the facts. The fact that Avenatti also is representing this guy just goes to tell you that. You know, this is they're trying to turn this into something it's not. Uh, but this is a disgrace. I mean, th- this is what this is what it means to be a conservative now in America, to be a, a prominent conservative. And uh, I, I would just note that if I were involved here and some guy said something like that to my little sister, red wine in the face would just be uh, the would be the least of his worries. Because, uh, you know, at, at a certain point as a man, you're just going to decide that you're you're going to stand up for your family's honor and if somebody's going to come back at you when you tell them you know what you think of them then things are things are going to get out of hand pretty quickly you know i'm i'm sure they're going to claim that the wine in the face is an assault um and you know now you get into well is it a fighting word situation and you know and, and that's not that goes back to Chaplinsky v New Hampshire that's an old supreme court case but you know is is a is a verbal uh, you know is is verbal exchange can you get a glass of wine in the face over that in technically probably no uh so but then again it's also not it would be a this would be like a misdemeanor ticket i mean no one's no one's gonna go to no one's gonna get arrested for a glass of wine in the face it doesn't do anyone any damage unless there's uh property damage to the individual shirt or something but hopefully it was white wine but i'm just saying i mean if tucker's son had punched this guy out and i sat on the jury i wouldn't convict you know you can't do that. I'm, I, I understand it's it's not legal to punch somebody because they call you call your your family member you know the wh word. But I I stand with Tucker and his whole family on this one a hundred percent. And it just also goes to show you what the leftist lib mentality is here, that they just are allowed to do this stuff, that they're allowed to harass people and say something. I mean, can you imagine being an adult man and saying something to? a 19-year-old girl about who she's having dinner with because you don't like the politics of somebody sitting there? I mean, Tucker's been an American political commentary for my entire adult life. And you know, now we're supposed to think that he should be ostracized, that he's a white nationalist and all this other crap that they say? By the way, he wasn't the only conservative that was uh, harassed over the weekend. Kat Timph who is a Fox News uh, Fox News pundit? I'm sure you've seen her. I've I've done different shows with her in the past. Uh, she's you know young woman. I don't know how old she is. You know, late twenties probably. And uh, she was chased out of an establishment. Chased out of an establishment because of her politics. I mean, so somebody you know uh, yelled at her. You know, humiliated her. And this is what the left does. I would just ask you, this is kind of like what we have to do with the whole election fraud thing. Where's the equivalent on the left here? Meaning, where do we have prominent pundits from the Obama administration? I'm not even talking about administration officials. I just mean people that are on the left who are you know Democrats in public life. Where do we have them getting chased out of restaurants and harassed? Where do we have them getting beat up on and and treated terribly in public. The answer is it didn't happen. You had the Tea Party movement. You had this resurgent conservatism during the Obama years. Nobody was 
chasing MSNBC anchors out of restaurants anywhere. It just didn't happen. This is a problem on the left. This is this is their thing. This is from their side, really because of how hysterical and how unmoored from reality a lot of their political positions have become, but also because they indulge this emotionalism on the left. They indulge this notion that if they're really upset about something, they you know should be able to um, just express that opinion slash act on it. And the act on it is when you start really getting in trouble because now you have people that are you know being humiliated, assaulted, attacked in public, and it's so corrosive to our discourse. And I just think it's so interesting too. The same people, I see in the media and the same mentality, the same leftists in general who are always telling us that, oh, Trump is he's so coarse, he's so unruly, he's so unrefined and rude. And, oh, my gosh, his Twitter just gives me the vapors, all that. Those same people are like, yeah, that's right. Chase Sarah Huckabee Sanders out of a restaurant. Show her who's boss. Really? You think that's a good idea? So that's. That's where it is. that's that's where this whole situation is right now. I mean, I I find it very, very frustrating, um, and and it's just something that we all need to pay attention to, because they're they're kind of working their way down the down the ranks, right? I mean, Tucker is at least a primetime anchor on Fox, but now that Cat Tim, I mean, she's just a you know a young lady. Cat's nice, I know Cat. She's a young lady, just trying to share her opinions and working in this media business and doing very well for herself. You're you're gonna, you're gonna yell at her now in a restaurant. You know, it's just a matter of time before I, I think it's because I, I don't do CNN anymore. So they don't see me on the in, in the blue hubs on the coast the way they used to. But it's just a matter of time before I have one of these incidents. And, and I'm telling you, I, I will not I will not take kindly to this and I will not back down because these people need to be taught a lesson. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Tucker uh, got up in this guy's face and let him know what he thinks of him, because, you know, there's something that really shakes us to our core when we're living in a country where now where half of the country's politics is an excuse in the other half's mind to ruin your night, your day, anytime they want, based on nonsense, based on, you know, oh, it's you're you're so white nationalist or oh your immigration policies are like Nazis. And this is the stuff that idiots believe. And these people just aren't very smart. Ultimately, that's that's a big problem. I mean, the left now has become a, a kind of psychological safe haven for people that just want to attach themselves to the belief that they are so, so smart and better than other people without actually doing any work and basing this in any reality, without having to know anything. I thought it was so funny today. Soledad O'Brien, who's like a fourth-tier TV host who had one of the worst shows in CNN's history, uh, tweeted out that on on the issue of immigration, uh, Senator Tom Cotton is, uh, I think, uh, shockingly... Ignorant, she said, or something like that. It was some, you know, adverb and ignorant, you know, astonishingly ignorant. And I just think it's so funny. Yeah, that's right. Tom Cotton, Harvard Law, Harvard undergrad, two combat tours as a platoon leader in Iraq and Afghanistan. But he's really ignorant, Soledad O'Brien. Let's hear from you on, like, whatever RT ripoff network she's on now. I mean, it's just the whole thing is such, such garbage. Um but anyway, I, I just this you're going to see more and more of this because the left doesn't. Here's the real secret of it all. or I mean, the real dirty secret. The left doesn't want to police this. They don't really have a problem with it. They kind of like seeing Fox News hosts get harassed in public. Uh, I, I would be so embarrassed. I mean, I can tell you that you guys all hold me to this. 
I would be so embarrassed if a conservative that I liked and respected harassed somebody in front of their children this way. And I would call them out, no question. The left won't do that, though. Why is that? It goes back to this point. I say, if you have honor now, you're a conservative. Very, very hard, not impossible, very hard to have honor in the way you view people in politics on the left. Very hard. Do you really want to trust all of your email to a bunch of mega progressive corporations out there that get scan your stuff, get to sell your information to third parties, and at the end of the day, have full control over the security of your account? I've got an idea. Try iPatriots.us. iPatriots.us is a new conservative alternative to liberal-based email services. iPatriots.us is secure and private. It includes more of what you want without all the ads and spam. With iPatriots, you get 30 gigs of cloud storage, larger attachment sizes, and much more. Your email and files are safe with iPatriots premium antivirus, anti-spam, 256-bit encryption. They won't sell your information or support liberal agenda items like a lot of those other email providers. iPatriots.us email is compatible with most mobile devices, iPhone, iPad, Android, Windows Mobile, BlackBerry. Show you're a patriot. Go to iPatriots.us now. Choose your membership program and input your desired iPatriots email address during checkout and a promo code BUCK for 10% off during your first year of membership. Is this president trying to impersonate Hugo Chavez, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Vladimir Putin? He said today, America first. It was not just the racial, I mean, the, I shouldn't say racial, the Hitlerian uh, background to it. He's not of sound mind. You, there, there, you, you, he, that's somebody that clinically you look at and say, there's something wrong there. Trump needs to be medicated and hospitalized. Donald Trump, again, being a schmuck. We can surely say his words have absolutely emboldened white supremacists. He has given oxygen to racists. He is clearly trying to ignite a civil war in this country. There's a sign out there that's been hung up in the White House or outside the White House saying, if you're not white, you're not especially welcome. He's a racist. So there's a real consequence to that kind of rhetoric that you hear in the media, right? There, there, this has implications for all of us in society. And we were just talking about what happened with, with Tucker and, and Kat Timpf and how people now feel like they have, they have a right, they have carte blanche to do this kind of stuff, to say these kinds of things, to be so nasty to strangers because of what they perceive as a stranger's politics. Not even a specific incident. Like, not even, oh... I saw what you said on this issue. Now I'm going to get in your face. Although that probably too. But just in general, you work at Fox News. You must be a bad person. You're a conservative. You must be a bad person. But that isn't surprising when you hear the rhetoric that's being used all the time because here's what's occurring. They keep saying Trump is a racist. Trump is a sexist. Trump is a bigot. At some point, when that becomes drilled into enough people's heads, then the automatic correlation is Trump is a racist and a bigot and a sexist. Therefore, people who support him are the same. And we're already seeing this. I mean, you want to talk about poisoning the discourse. Here's an Axios poll that was just published today that said that 61% of those who identified as Democrats think that Republicans are racist, bigoted, sexist. Only 31% of Republicans feel the same way about Democrats. Uh, so, you know, this this is a this is a poll that is really indicative of where all this is of the direction that that our conversation is going in now, where Democrats 
don't really even feel the need to justify their policies, to engage in debate. They've just, everything is, everything that everyone is racist now that they don't like. You hear, you hear this all the time. You know, Trump is so racist. Meanwhile, you look at the Florida election, and a third of Hispanics and Latinos, same thing I know, but, you know, a third of, uh, of Latinos in Florida voted for the Republican candidate in this last midterm. So did they just not get the memo that Trump, quote, doesn't like brown people, end quote? Because I, I keep hearing this, and that Trump is such a racist. And then when I say, why is Trump such a racist? They say, oh, because of his statement on Charlottesville. Well, okay. I mean, Trump, after that statement, has condemned racists uh, so many times I can't keep track. And I think to this day that he misspoke. And what he was trying to say was that there's good people on both sides of the debate over whether to keep up Confederate statues as a part of our history. I don't think that he was saying that the Tiki Torch Mafia has good people in it. I, I don't think that's what he was trying to say. Uh, but they use that. That's just the club. And, and unless you have to say, oh, that's right. okay, I, I give, I give, you're right, Trump is racist, Trump is racist because he said that thing. I turn around and I say to them, well, where are we supposed to go in our discussions with the left if every time that they want to win an argument, they just turn around and say that Trump is racist? And, and, and what does that mean for all of his supporters? We're at a point now we're going to have to start asking these Democrat talking head types, okay, so are all of Trump's supporters racist too? They'll probably say no, but a lot of them are. You know, no, but if you if you are a racist, you're you're a Republican. And I'd say, well, that's only because now, by the way, racism has left. Racism is no longer animus towards someone based on skin color. Racism is animus based on skin color from an elevated position within a hierarchical society. Oh, that's right. Intersectionality, that leftist belief that we're all just competing and warring factions for power based on our identity groups. That is now an essential component of racism. So effectively, the left does not believe that a black person can be racist against a white person in America. What I want to know is, okay, but can a black person be racist against a Hispanic person and vice versa? You know, who's going to referee these things if we're really going to change the definition of racism? But at the end of the day, this is just because they use racism as a club against the right. And that is the primary purpose it serves for them in discourse. We're going to talk about 2020 in a minute. Do you want to run again? No. Wait. No. That was a pause. Well, I, well I'd like to be president. Okay. Uh. <laughs> what happened was, I'm back. That's right, everybody. Who's been saying it all along? I know you don't like when I pat myself on the back for my, my predictions and all that stuff, but sometimes I can't help it, all right? Here's a piece in the Wall Street Journal written by Mark Penn and Andrew Stein. Hillary will run again. Oh, that's right. Now it's becoming a thing that people are talking about. What a shock. Mr. Sexton, as you know, has been telling you for quite some time this is going to happen. You're a smart guy. Why, thank you. I agree. I am a stable genius. Uh, the way it's going to work is, well, let, let me give you a little bit of this piece, okay? Let me give you a little bit of what Mark Pence says here, because it's really a continuation of the argument that I've been making to you. This is all about narrative and the absence of a Democrat bench and the Hillary apparatus all around her. Those people are all still, they think, in their kind of peak politico years, right? They're, they're supposed to get those senior advisor jobs. They're supposed to be in that White House. They're supposed to be calling the shots for the whole country. And then they're supposed to be dining out on that for the next 20 years afterwards. They haven't given up on that. 
Here's what Penn writes. Quote, get ready for Hillary Clinton 4.0. Oh, my gosh. It's painful just to say. More than 30 years in the making. This new version of Mrs. Clinton, when she runs for president in 2020, will come full circle back to the universal health care promoting progressive firebrand of 1994. True to her name, Mrs. Clinton will fight this out until the last dog dies. She won't let a little thing like two stunning defeats stand in the way of her claim to the White House. Wow. And then he goes into the history that we all know of. She lost. And then, then he gets into the meat of what's going on here. Claims of a Russian conspiracy and the unfairness of the Electoral College shielded Mrs. Clinton from ever truly conceding she had lost. She was robbed, she told herself, yet again. But after two years of brooding, including at book length, Mrs. Clinton has come unbound. She will not allow this humiliating loss at the hands of an amateur to end the story of her career. You can expect her to run for president once again. Maybe not at first, when the legions of Senate Democrats make their announcements, but definitely by the time the primaries are in full swing. Mrs. Clinton has a 75% approval rating among Democrats. Folks, this is, I I can't, remember, I, I like to predict the future, but only because I know that nobody can really do it. So it's really more of an exercise in analysis and and amusement than anything else, right? I mean, it's nobody can predict the future. But Hillary Clinton, as the Democrat nominee, the more you think about it, the more sense that it makes. This is one of those things that it it sounds a little crazy. And then you you sit back and you wait, hold on a second. Who else is it going to be? And the Democrats have never really accepted that Hillary lost. Remember, they buy into this Russia collusion nonsense. They think that Putin is pulling the strings on Trump and that, that that's why the whole thing went the way it did. And they believe that. They believe that. So in that environment, be prepared for this. They keep saying, oh, we're going to have this huge primary. Look at the people they're putting in the primary. None of them, none of them have the heft nor the machinery behind them to try to to, to even put a dent in Trump's support where it matters. Yeah, of course, you could put any Democrat. You could run a guy named Bob who has a D next to his name. Hi, I'm Bob. And just put him anywhere, you know, put him in, and he's going to win California, New York. I mean, that's just a given. So it's really a question of well, who can actually square up against Trump in Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. What you, you think? You think uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders? Come on, that's not serious. That's not. Well, I mean, Bernie at least would be interesting. I don't know if it would be interesting when they finally count the votes, but at least it would be an interesting election. Uh, but all those other names. I mean, you run establishment Democrat light and you're going to get crushed so you might as well go with the heaviest hitter for the swampy democrat elite you can and you know who that is hillary the show ain't over yet folks it's time for roll call all righty roll call i was up in nyc over the weekend uh saw miss molly it was very nice and got to hang out with uh with the uh, the dog known as Harold, who is a half pit bull, half boxer. And uh, he is quite a snuggler, I will tell you. He's good at the snuggles. Um, also good at pulling me around the block like a rag doll on the leash. But nonetheless, we had we had a very, very good time. I got to say one thing about New York. It's just, it's such an experience. If you've never been there before, you've got to go to New York City 
and then open up the uh, Open Table app, and then just see all the options you have, and just be overwhelmed by all the restaurants. I'm here in D.C., which is technically a city. You know, I do my show live from the Swamp now every day, and you know, it's you, you get tired. The restaurants are kind of the restaurants, and you get through them pretty quickly. In New York, it's just it's endless. I know I sound like I work for the New York Board of Tourism, but as as many of you have found out, if you send me a a Facebook message request for advice on what to do or where to eat or go or anything in New York City, I, I tend to reply uh, with, I tend to reply voluminously uh, because I enjoy telling people about the good parts of the city. Stay out of Times Square, all right? That's point number. I always tell people, stay out of Times Square. That's not New York. That's a, it is a tourist trap. Do not go to Times Square. Go to other neighborhoods where people actually live. Don't go to Times Square. Uh, all right. Gary writes, hey, Buck. Heard the shout out and you read my message on the show. Awesome. Finally saw pictures of Miss Molly. Way to go, bud. She's lovely. You've done well. All the best to both of you. Shields high, Gary. Well, thank you, Gary. You are very, very kind, sir. And I, and I appreciate that. So uh, good man. Thank you. Brant writes, hey, Buck, so pissed. In my district, which is New Mexico District 2, the Democrats found 8,000 more votes the next day to flip an oil field red district that accounts for 25% of, of New Mexico's entire budget for the first time in 30 years. I feel like they aren't even trying to hide it anymore. They've done so much damage to the integrity of our election system. I don't think I have any faith in it at all. That was the one office the people of my area felt like they have a say. These are very bad. This is very bad for the country. Brent, uh, you know, the... The left, you got to remember, they feel very emboldened because they really believe in many cases that the election was stolen from them. And so when, if you believe, for example, that the election was stolen, well, then you'll obviously be a whole lot more comfortable stealing an election yourself. You know, they think that 2016 was stolen. And so they're just setting things right in the universe with what they are doing now. Uh, of course, it's terrible and it undermines our entire system and I'm just I'm just waiting. As I've said to you, my the the special buck election challenge. Da, 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 da. The special buck election challenge is show me an important. I don't care about local dog catcher in Tuscaloosa. No offense, Tuscaloosa, but show me an important election where the Democrat has been declared the winner by national media, and all of a sudden Republicans are like, oh wait, wait, there's more. Up, oh, up, oh, look at this. Look what I found up my sleeve. Up, oh, I got. Something's itching in my pants. I think I got to vote now. Oh, oh, you know, I find one place where that happens. And I think I think you'll have great difficulty doing so. Um, Harry writes in. Whoa, it's quite a long one here. Harry, here we go. Harry, whoa. Uh oh, I'm sorry, Harry. I just uh, your, your note was so long that it it threw me off. And now I've gone into. Gosh, I do sound like I sound like the. Uh, the person that can't get the VCR to work sometimes on this radio show. Okay, here we go. Hey, Buck, I was generally delighted to hear you mention Miss Molly on Friday. Uh, with all the brouhaha about Medicare for all, I wanted to make the point that Obamacare is not, repeat, not about health care, nor quality, nor quantity directly. It is about insurance coverage and who pays for health care. A month and a half ago, I fell off our porch roof and crushed my L1 vertebra. Bummer, but no worries. I'm healing with no permanent damage, thank God. Well, that's good news, Harry. I finally got the ER bill and the Medicare coverage statement. The local hospital charged $300 for a CT scan. The Medicare-approved amount was 53 bucks, and they paid $41, leaving me with $10 to pay. So what happened to the 247 that was not approved? 
Several other items were treated similarly. I've noticed this pattern for decades with private insurers even long before I became eligible for Medicare. Here's the point. If the medical profession is apparently overcharging for services, it's no wonder everyone's outraged at the cost of medical care. Perhaps they should be charging less so health care is more affordable. Um, your thoughts, Shields Highbuck, and thank you again for all you do for the rational conservative perspective. Well, Harry, first of all, man, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're on the mend. Good to know no permanent damage done. And I mean, gotta be careful with uh back injuries, you know, as as you well know now, Harry, but just in general. Your back, you know, your head and your back, you you gotta take other things they can fix. You know, they, they can fix arms, they can fix legs. Although they can't fix ankles that well, as I have found out myself. But they can fix things, you know, that are extremities and but your your head and your spine and your back, you really got to take good care of. Um, and as to your points about uh, healthcare, yeah, it's absolutely true. And and what you see is the lack of transparency in costs when it comes to healthcare is a huge problem. Right? This is a massive, massive problem because how can you even begin to get the public outcry necessary to change the system? Remember, there's all kinds of regulations. When you don't even have price transparency. So we don't really know how much stuff costs. And we're led to believe that it's better for us to not know because we're not paying that much for certain things. But the moment you get out of that system and you do, for example, want to pay out of pocket, you get ripped off. And, you know, this is when you get these stories about, you know, how a hospital will charge whatever it is, $80 for an aspirin or something. There are all these ways that it's really just moving the costs around. And you just want to try to avoid being the one who pays. But it's it, this is why it's fundamentally, if not a socialist system that we are battling against when it comes to what the Democrats want, it's certainly a socialist mindset, which is that we'll all be better off if we all have to give to each other from what we have. That doesn't create more. That doesn't create abundance. That doesn't create a surplus. It doesn't create faster, better, more efficient services for anyone. It just takes the services you have and breaks them up and gives them to other people. And that's not good. So, you know, Harry, I'm, I'm, I'm very much, I want prescription drug prices to have transparency. I think that's a huge problem. Prescription drug costs over the last, I think it's 10 or 12 years, have spiraled into the stratosphere. Uh, it's particularly the last decade or so that they've just gone, it's just gone out of control. So something's definitely up. Matthew writes, Buck, one thing I find odd is that is always overlooking the illegal immigration debate how they affect elections even if they do not vote. Since they are counted in the census for calculating population and congressional representation, it is continually giving more power to cities over rural areas. Thanks for the great work on the show, as always. Uh, you know, Matthew, this is why there's such a sensitivity over including the question about citizenship on the census, the next census that's going to go out, because they don't want them to ask people if they're illegals. They say it's because they'll be scared and they want to answer the question. I don't think that that's true. What they don't want is for us to really know how many illegals are in certain areas. The number, I, I keep saying, one day you'll be like, wow, that guy Buck Sexton. Even if you don't listen to anything else I say here, one day, I can't tell you when, but one day you'll say, wow, that guy Buck Sexton, he's been saying it's 20 million illegals for years now. Because it'll come out that that's true. It is not 11 million people. No friggin' way. The number does not stay static. There are 2,000 a day crossing the border right now. 2,000 a day. We can do math. There are 500,000 visa overstays every year in this country. 
So you got, let's call it just to make it an easier number. You got a thousand a day crossing the border right now. And if that, you know, keeps up for any period of time, you got at least a couple of hundred thousand that are coming across the border claiming asylum or whatever, or just coming in illegally over the course of the year. You got at least a couple hundred thousand. You got at least a couple hundred thousand visa overstays that aren't planning on going back anytime soon. They're illegals in this country. A lot of them are going to have kids here, stay here, never go anywhere. So, I mean, that's a few hundred thousand a year. And we're told the number is 11 million. It's been 11 million for the last 10 years because of people leaving. Oh, yeah, that's right. A lot of people who are in the U.S. league are like, yeah, I'm just going to go back to Honduras. I think I got a better I think I got a better scene there. I don't think so. Right. When you when you just reason this out, you realize how crazy it is. And and people say, oh, Buck, the, uh, the official number. Yeah, the official number, because the only way the government wants to count them and has wanted to count them up to this point is voluntary Pew surveys. This is a joke. Think about that. And we're talking about an environment where we realize, look what happened in 2016 where you had all the top pollsters in the country just, you know, get the election wrong. And that's just picking a binary thing. That's not getting a specific number, right? Who's going to win? I mean, yeah, they were within the margin of error. I know that. But still, they all thought Hillary was going to win. You think that they're, they're doing such a great job at the government level? That's not even private sector. Figuring out how many legals, as you can tell, I get passionate about this one because it's just crazy. It's just crazy to me, man. It's just nuts. Adam writes, Buck, on the media bias issue, could we not use the FCC to crack down on this? Huge fines, the corrections or attractions, say $10,000 per incident plus $1,000. View the original over the fixing article. Now, Adam, I appreciate where your head's at on that, but we can't find people for journalism mistakes. The only exception to that would be slander, libel, that kind of stuff, but... You can't find people for good faith mistakes in journalism because think about how that could be turned around on us when we're not in charge of the FCC. I mean, as it is, I I, kind of think the FCC should probably be abolished. I I am not in favor of having a government regulatory body that is uh, dealing with communications in that way. I I don't I don't like any of this. And I, I do worry a little bit that in the era of Trump's political ascendancy that we're in right now, where Trump really does seem, the movement is obviously here to stay. And let's be honest about it, he he seems unbeatable right now for 2020. Now, I know that that may change, but it seems like Trump can't lose for 2020. Uh, Just keep in mind that you may have, I know, bite your tongue, but there is a possibility of a President Warren being in charge of the FCC and you know how how will we feel about things then I mean if you do if that were to happen how would you feel about it you know that's you got to remember that got to keep that one in mind so we don't want to take on powers for ourselves that we would not want the other side to have uh, we'll get to more roll call this week by the way I've got my man Raheem Kassam in for me on Thursday because I got to do a little traveling for uh you know some stuff I'll be out in uh, Illinois actually at a private event giving a speech because that's right Buck will show up We'll speak for food, and usually an honorarium, but we'll do that. Uh, so keep that in mind, those of you listening across the country. I am great live, I will tell you. I, I am great at the live things. So pe- some people just say, oh, wow, they see me speak somewhere. They go, we should have you speak at my event. And I say, yes, you should, sir or madam. And how can you get me to speak? Facebook, send me a message. Say, hey, Buck, speaking engagement in all caps. Trust me, I'll see that one. That's going to be it for today. Uh, Thanks so much, team, for being here, as always. Until tomorrow, shields high.
You've heard me talk about it, and thousands of my listeners have already joined Snippy.com. Look, if you've checked it out already, check it out again. Go to Snippy.com and see how people are expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. All right, Snippy is a place where everyone is free to express their thoughts and share their opinions. I post on Snippy, and let me tell you, I think that the interface is fantastic. You've got to check this out for yourself. Biggest, biggest selling point here, folks, there's no left-wing moderators who are shadow banning you or any of that stuff, right? No shadow banning, no suppression of conservative thought ever. Totally free to join, open to everyone. Join us at snippy.com and let your opinion matter. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android, Snippy, your new alternative social media.